Hello and welcome back. There will be spoilers. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we've returned with number 52 on AFI's top 100 list of America's greatest films, Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver. 1976 film. I'd never seen it before, but I have now, Ethan. Mm. Have you seen this before? I saw it when I was in high school, maybe, and did not get it. Well, it should have at least made you understand all those weird kids in high school, right? No. I feel like there are so many people that must have drawn direct inspiration from Taxi Driver that now makes so much sense to me after having seen the film. I don't know at all what you mean. I'm confused. (laughs) Travis Bickle, his whole philosophy and way of life and his violent outbursts of action seem like a lot of people's inspiration that that's like they saw this as like a nihilistic outcry or something okay yeah i can i can understand that so i could see like all these kids in high school wore the big military style jackets and had mohawks and kind of spouted similar bickle isms and philosophies right it just it just makes a lot of sense to me now uh yeah i can see that we should maybe move on to a plot synopsis Oh, yes, let's do it. Uh, Taxi Driver is the story of Travis Bickle, a young ex-Marine in New York who, in order to combat his insomnia, becomes a late-night taxi driver. He appears strange and lonely and spends his other free time visiting pornographic theaters and keeping a journal, uh, the journal which serves as narration for the film. He eventually becomes infatuated with a campaign staffer named Betsy, who works for presidential candidate Charles Palantine. The two date, but when Travis takes her to a porno film, uh, she sours on him, understandably, and refuses to see him any longer. The more Travis works the more disgusted he becomes with the filth, degeneracy, and corruption he sees around him in the city and begins to have violent thoughts. One night, a young sex worker tries to get into his cab but is dragged away by her pimp, who tosses Travis a crumpled 20. The bill becomes a constant physical reminder of Travis's disgust. Soon, Travis begins cutting back his drinking and pill-popping and starts to train his body. He purchases several illegal pistols and practices drawing them in the mirror. At a convenience store one evening, he witnesses a robbery and fatally shoots the assailant before fleeing. After seeing the sex worker Iris, is her name, uh from before several times he finds her and under the pretense of hiring her tries to convince her to leave the life she's in he takes her to breakfast to further convince her but she does not bite then uh he shaves his head into a mohawk he writes a letter to iris um that contains cash for her to escape the letter says that when you get this i'll be dead um then he attends a rally for Palantine, but before he can assassinate Palantine, which is apparently is his plan, he's spotted by Secret Service and he flees. As he flees, he heads towards Iris's neighborhood, where he begins a shootout with her pimps. He kills them, but is gravely wounded. Afterwards, it becomes clear that he's survived, and Iris has returned home to her parents, and Travis is lauded as a hero. He meets Betsy again, and the two appear to make up. Uh, Travis doesn't charge her for the ride he gives her. Uh, The film ends as Travis notices something alarming in his rearview mirror. So I would argue that Travis and Betsy do not make up, that Travis is still 
messed up from the event and his thoughts and it's not at all cool with betsy and you still got simmering bad travis underneath that nonchalant exterior yeah i i wouldn't disagree with that they seem civil perhaps she appears to be back okay with him because he is some sort of weird hero yeah but certainly it's not the the same as it was before i guess that would be a good way to put it and this is one thing that is nitpicky about the film that i guess we should address so he does take her to a pornographic theater but the film itself at least from what we saw it didn't seem terribly pornographic it was certainly suggestive but I, I didn't really understand the full context of their fallout. It was a it's, it is definitely the worst date you could you could take someone to. I think. Well, we haven't seen the graduate yet, so don't don't say that so quickly. Um, the, the strange thing here is that he seems not to realize that that's a fucking weird thing to do. Yeah, I, and I think that was what kind of confused me, even in this viewing. You know, they get there and she's like, this is a dirty movie. And he's like, oh, no, it's fine. And they get in there and clearly she gets upset and like runs out. And he's like, I didn't know you wouldn't like that. But it's also weird that she lets herself be convinced by him. He's like, no, no, it's fine. She's like, oh, okay. It's like, I don't know about that. Yeah, it's it's their relationship regardless is a strange one. Um but I really got the sense that he doesn't think he's doing anything out of the ordinary. He taking her to the porno theater, which I, I mean, I take that as to sort of show just how fucked up he is. Like he's right. so deep in this, in what, you know, whatever thing he's in that he's like, Oh yes, yeah, it's normal. We're going to go see a movie. And that's the movie they go and see. And he just doesn't get it. Well, this, I think, plays nicely into the idea of, like, oh, Travis wants to clean up the filth in the city. However, he is a man of contradictions, as Betsy points right. out, because he's part of that filth. He is in the theater, that porno theater, with Betsy. There are a couple, there are several other couples there. So he's not wrong. Other couples go there, right? So it might point to some of the degeneracy that he's talking about that he's also partaking yeah. in. Also, throughout the film, when he says, like, oh, time to get back in shape. No more pills. No more drinking. He looks worse and worse and worse. So yeah, it becomes clear that we can't rely on the voiceover, the narration in his diary or journal, which is also some of the worst. Vo- it's like Harrison Ford, Blade Runner level <laughs> bad voiceover. Yeah. But it becomes clear we can't trust what he's saying and that he's clearly not done with pills and alcohol because he just looks terrible. And at one point, Iris says, do you look at your own eyeballs in the mirror? And we're supposed to, I took that anyway, is that he's very clearly still addicted to substances. Yeah, he's still fucked up. I mean, uh, you know, at one point he is in his apartment eating a meal of white bread in a bowl, milk, sugar, and like peach schnapps. And that's what he's eating. Uh, What? uh, I'm sorry. Is that, is that weird? Um, I mean, not for you or I, but perhaps for our listeners. For a more um, discerning audience. Right. I mean, well, actually, and, and honestly, I prefer, uh, you know, mint schnapps on my yeah, of course. bread, sugar, milk combination. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you're right. When we see him do these things and we listen to his narration, uh, 
and and we see him as a a very contradictory person he's we can't trust him he's highly unreliable uh and perhaps that's maybe what the the end of the film where, where he looks in that rearview mirror that in and of itself is like what what is he looking at what could it be uh, you know he's lauded as a hero at the end he's not a hero so we'll get to the ending i have a couple things i want to bring up about the ending but first we should probably give a little rundown of who's who in the film so we've got robert de niro he was in our last film in the deer hunter also yeah. vietnam veteran he's back again as a vietnam veteran and he's the travis bickle main character betsy is played by the same lady who played in the last picture show do you remember her oh the like terrible girlfriend to jeff bridges yes that's her again ah uh, i knew i recognized her from somewhere Harvey Keitel is Sport or Matthew, one of the pimps for Iris. Yeah. Iris, of course, is played by Jodie Foster. Ah, uh, Jodie Foster. A 12 and a half year old Jodie Foster, by the way. Ooh, 12 and a half Jodie Foster. And then we also have Peter Boyle is the wizard. Everyone remembers him a lot, I guess, these days from Everyone Loves Raymond. He's Everybody Raymond's loves father. Raymond. And, and who else am I missing here, Ethan? I think you've got pretty much everybody that is of note. Oh, you know what? Tom. You know who Tom is? The Tom. Guy who's interested in Betsy at the campaign. Oh, yes. That's Marlin from Finding Nemo. Really? Yeah. Oh. And it turns out most of his lines were improvised. So that guy is just funny because I thought some of the best dialogue came from those scenes in that, that film. True, yeah, where he's like kind of flirting with her and he's on the phone and shit. Yeah. Yeah. So i really enjoyed this film i enjoyed it more than i enjoyed the deer hunter uh but that bar is pretty low i didn't not enjoy this film i don't know where i quite feel about it right now i i didn't dislike it i wouldn't say i loved it i i there's a lot going on well i'll tell you what ethan i bet once i tell you my pivotal scene and we get through some theses and we talk about some questions i bet you'll know how you feel about it i probably will so the pivotal scene that I chose for this film was Peter Boyle, the wizard's philosophy, because I think this happens at a turning point in the film where Travis really makes a decision to really give into this sort of nihilistic approach to the world because he's outside at the wizard. He's already having weird episodes and feelings and he's, his, his thoughts aren't all arranged. Let's say he's mentally unstable. And yeah. the wizard says, you're young, you got your youth, go out, drink, have sex, do drugs, whatever, do something. And Travis mm -hmm. is confessing to him, I've got bad thoughts. And the wizard's like, look, you become your job. And there's some language of people losing their identity in the work that they do, which also prefigures Travis's own degeneracy. Because if he is this cabbie, late night cabbie, in the worst dregs of the city, and all he sees at night are pimps and prostitutes and gangsters and criminals what is he going to become if not part of that the scum True. right the the worst sucking scum is what he calls matthew but he's really no better yes. than that and so this all prefigures that and also alludes to his moment that of this violent outburst just to do something yeah um also if just this is just a little psa uh if someone tells you that they're having violent thoughts you know, maybe you should say something to somebody. <laughs> yeah. Don't 
don't be like the wizard if someone tells you they have violent thoughts uh yeah you should uh alert someone some mental health professionals but the wizard is part of this scum this underbelly this nightlife this modern streetlight noir as i'd like to term it perhaps that is pervasive in this film and so yeah travis confessing to him it really seems like he's looking for absolution but also maybe permission and the attempted assassination of palatine just is entirely arbitrary other than that he feels wrong by betsy and so he tries to take it out on everything she's putting her effort into yeah and then turns it to something that would arbitrarily label him a hero right killing of all these pimps and one is a john right a patron but he's also maybe a pimp of some kind i think because he's paying or matthew has to pay him so maybe he's like next level pimp like distributor level pimp i don't know how yeah that industry works they all seem to be pimp-esque right pimp-esque and i think all this is to illustrate that travis's violence is arbitrary and it doesn't ultimately mean anything even though the ending ascribes a lot of meaning to it circumstantially yeah so let's play the clip there we go Dumbest thing ever. Side, 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 side
Travis, not stable. Not no. somebody you hear this from and think, ah, he's going to be fine. Which I think is what the wizard actually says to him. You're going to be fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so the signs are all there. And I think that's why it's such a good movie. Because we are watching that mental spiral of someone who is mentally unstable convincing themselves in these tight circles with their own logic about the way the world works. Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, he does, I think, see himself a hero uh, in in some way, right? He, he thinks of himself as, like we've pointed out, above all of the crime and sleaze and whatever but but he is he's in the thick of it right he's not you know but but he sees the world as not what it is right as as something as as a fantasy i guess right he also sees himself above it right that he's the one that's going out there and punisher style clean up the mess but you know his whole assassination attempt on palantine as you pointed out really only makes sense if he's trying to punish betsy why else would he kill Palantine? There, we don't really even know enough about him to think that he's, you know, uh, some sort of compromised, crimey character. Right, especially given that Travis gives him a ride in his cab, arbitrarily again. This is an accident, uh, serendipity in the film. And he talks to him and says, well, Travis, what's the most important issue? And he says, well, you need to clean up the streets. Like, this place is scum. And Palantine very diplomatically says, well, Travis... It's not going to be easy, but we'll get there. And so if Travis were thinking clearly and not just lashing out violently just to be noticed, he would see that Palantine actually, you know, would potentially be on his side. Yeah, definitely. So, Ethan, I'd like to read you my thesis to really formalize some of the stuff I've been saying. So Tax Driver is a film about alienation and stagnation, right? Travis is the product of a degenerating America and the instability that modern conditions bring. Among all this, he is the spectacular result of a confluence of these things, right? He is just the, I kept seeing this film as a pressure cooker, the conditions that the main character is in, and just Travis breaking down, breaking down, breaking down, right? We've got a clearly traumatized veteran coming home from Vietnam, not able to deal with some of the symptoms of that trauma, insomnia, namely, so what's he do? He puts himself back into the traumatic situation of going through the yeah. roughest parts of New York City in the dead of night where only criminals are at. Criminals and people yeah. who are having affairs. You got the Martin Scorsese moment where he's in the backseat of Travis's car saying, that's my wife up there and she's not with me. And he's just slowly deteriorating in the backseat of Travis's cab. Mm-hmm. And Travis is silent throughout most of this and most of the episodes in which he has these compromised people in the back of his cab. He saw it through most of it, but it's clearly rubbing off on him. It's clearly affecting him. And so yeah. I see all of this as creating Travis. And of course, he, some of these things were already there due to the war and maybe pre-existing mental conditions. Who knows? But I see all of this as just continually manipulating Travis into this monster that he'll become. Yeah. I mean, this is similar to what I see this movie doing, right? I mean, it, it looks at, uh, the sort of isolation, the confusion, and and the degeneracy, as we've pointed out, that is inherent in um, sort of modern urbanity, right? Uh, when you have this many people together in a, a big city like this, you know, 
this is part of the result, right? You get the glamorous side that we don't really see in this movie, um, but you also get all of the seedy, you know, uh, underbelly uh, parts, right? And and it imposes this upon people and it affects people. Um, you know, modern life in an urban setting does this to people, especially, uh, you know, people like you've pointed out that are already compromised from other traumatic events in their lives. Um, and it, and it, really i think tries to hammer home the fact that the, there is not a clear line between heroism and villainy uh in the in a traditional sense right uh they both do i mean if travis is a hero at the end as people seem to see him as uh he doesn't mean to be a hero particularly by that point right he just go, it's it's just violence yeah, he's just accidentally a hero, right? It's accidentally the case that he's yes. a hero. Yeah, he's accidentally a hero, and that, I guess, redeems him in some sense. Uh, not really. I mean, that's kind of sarcasm. Uh, but that's what this film is looking at, I think, right? Is this, you know, the drudgery and the awfulness and the, the sort of side effects of modern urban life uh, and what it does to people, which is to make things unclear and random and accidental which brings me back to the ending and something you said about the ways in which these modern conditions are affecting everyone i think scorsese and the writer of this film are also putting a condemnation on society itself so my thesis i talk about really the the instability and degeneration of modern conditions united states in particular because they give you a chance as the viewer to see this as Travis becoming a hero and that everything's okay, right? You can see this as, oh, he killed these three bad men and now he's a hero and everything's going to be okay. Right. And a lot of people have theorized that last scene is the dying breaths or a dream of Travis that everything gets sorted out. I was going to say, I I really see that last, at least in this last viewing, that last scene as a, as a dream of sorts. Uh, and then his glance into the, the rearview mirror as, oh, my bat signal, I must go, uh, right? And it's not real. It's, it's, a, it's a fantasy, right? He's dead. So you can see it that way. I think you're justified in seeing it that way. But Scorsese and the writer on record saying, nope, that happened. He's there. He recuperated from his wounds. But... They add this detail in that he was a hero in the situation, but he is not any better. He's still sick. He's still ill. And next time, he's not going to be seen as a hero. I mean, I can... I, yeah, that's a completely valid way to read the end of this film. And both of them, I think, are equally dark, right? Like, if it's just his dying dream... Well, it just depends on how much emphasis you put on authorial or directorial intent, because... If you yeah. take their word for it, then then your reading is no, but I'm a little more right. open to reader interpretation, let's say. Yeah. Ethan, how about we tackle these three questions of ours? Let's do it. Okay, first question, as always, is do we care about this film? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we do. I think that this really, in a lot of ways, is a, a quintessential 70s film, right? There's no clear good or evil the main character is highly untrustworthy um but at times fashions himself a a hero uh it, it's gritty um 
you know, it's it's about urban life. You know, it's in the in New York City. These all feel very 1970s. Uh, you know, the breakdown of of heroes and villains and and what have you. Uh, the the rise of the anti-hero. I think we, I think, yeah, I think this, a lot of the films we've seen before this, such as, I mean, even Deer Hunter, if we're going to go right back, you know, this film does similar things and it does it well. Well, where I think this movie departs from Deer Hunter, even though they're very similar, Robert De Niro is a Vietnam veteran that comes home and things happen. But what I think is different about this as opposed to Deer Hunter is Deer Hunter shows us the effects of trauma and so does Taxi Driver. But where Taxi Driver differs is that it really shows us this downward spiral of mental instability or mental illness. Yeah. Which is not something I've seen on the list yet. Yeah. So I think we have think to care about right. it for, for reasons like that. Yeah. So our next question is, what do we owe to this film? I think that there is a certain kind of Scorsese style that is imitated quite a bit. That gritty New Yorky you know driving the riding with people in the back of your taxi cab i mean we can kind of see this uh as a visual call in um pulp fiction when uh booch jumps out of the window and he's in the he's in esmeralda's taxi you know that feels very lifted straight from scorsese and the the sort of crazy tough guy i mean you you talking to me you talk like that's we can't escape that that's iconic Right, so we've got an iconic line. You're also right about Tarantino. Tarantino cites this as a very formative film for him. Yeah. Which we know how I feel about Quentin Tarantino, but we'll leave that aside. Right. I think this also says something really important about noir. We have an established noir genre by this time, of course, but this like modern, seedy, streetlight noir, I think it adds a new context or a new variable or a new aspect to it. I'm with you. This is very much a, a you know a 1970s update on film noir it, to the point that we even have the uh, the voiceover right that you would expect from like a, even a hard boiled style detective novel right? right. So it's there, yeah, and we can see this then in Blade Runner. Yes, absolutely. The like neo noir type level. I would say. I got really heavy, like Nashville, the film vibes from this, mm-hmm. but Nashville yeah. came out a year earlier. We also have a potentially social misfit, misfit attempt at assassination of a senator, where yeah, the politics yeah, yeah, yeah. of that senator have been the center, or at least a center of that film up to that point. So I, I sort of saw that connection, but I think really what film comes out of this is, do you remember that 90s film with Natalie Portman as a child, Leon the Professional? I have not seen it. Well, it's, it stars like a 12-year-old Natalie Portman, which that age is conspicuous given that jo- uh, Jodie Foster is also the same Jodie Foster, 12 years old, yeah. This assassin basically kills her parents and is trying to eventually save her. And that felt very much like the last 20 minutes of this film. So I think mm-hmm. I think that's a very big um, influence to Leon the Professional. But overall, I think you're right about this anti-heroism and the late 70s type film, right, that comes out in... It's very it's very distinct, I think, this type of film in this genre at this time. Mm-hmm. So let's go to our third and final question. Does it hold up? Uh, yeah, I think it does. I, I think it does. Uh, visually, in terms of its narrative, uh, it, it made a lot more sense than it did when I was 16. So... 
Um, yeah, I think it holds up. I think that it, it, it's it, uh, an interesting watch, uh, at times kind of fun, uh, but still disturbing. And it, I think it balances the disturbing and the less so better than something like Deer Hunter, which was just mostly disturbing. Yeah, I think where I don't want to watch Deer Hunter again anytime soon, I think I would watch this film again in yeah. relatively short order. Yeah. And we've talked about this before, but I do think going back to this anti-hero mid to late 70s type genre noir or not the sort of gritty film in any case i think those films really hold up visually maybe that's because we're sort of making a return to that kind of aesthetic but it definitely feels like those films aren't as far away as 40 some odd years yeah well i think that there is a cultural shift right now that is not dissimilar from the sort of cultural shift in the in the 70s i mean look at the political landscape right now um there is a d- distrust that mimics you know a distrust of the government a distrust of uh authority figures of establishment um you know of of traditional heroes and villains right uh we're at a moment where that i think speaks to people uh you know we're in a divisive period um and and it is not unlike the period of the 1970s uh at least as represented in media i think you're right uh for good or for ill in this situation but in any case we'll return actually next week because we did miss a week and when we return we'll be on the 50th episode (gasps) in the canon That was weird. I don't know why that noise came out of me. (laughs) We'll be back with number 51 on the list, which is West Side Story. West Side Story. But until then, I've been Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Are you talking about spoilers? Uh, Are you talking about spoilers? You must be talking about spoilers because there's nothing else here but spoilers. Are you talking about spoilers? There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.